Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2019. And today's date is Friday, October the 18th. First, I talk to Ben Ravel in the UK, who has introduced winebuyers.com. He's made a difference to e-commerce wine retailing. It's a case of tech meets old school, with a wine club that offers consumers the chance to buy wine at the same price, direct from the supplier, and which lists over 50,000 wines and spirits. Working on a completely transparent model, wine buyers do not mark up prices or charge commission on any item sold, enabling customers to buy wines at exactly the same price as they would from the supplier direct. Wine buyers makes its revenue from charging suppliers a subscription fee, and custom-built APIs automate the entire process. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Chief Economist Alex Joyner, analysing the RBA rate cuts. But now, let's talk to Ben Ravel. Well, Ben, tell us about winebuyers.com. Yeah, so Wine Buyers, we're an online platform that connects producers and specialist merchants directly to the end consumer. Uh, what makes us different from everybody else in the market is we don't charge commission on anything we sell and we don't mark up the prices. So it's exactly the same price on our platforms if you walk to the gates of the vineyard itself. And that's sort of it in a nutshell. That's our strapline, so to speak. 
Um, so instead, we uh, we make our revenue from subscriptions. So as I'm sure you're aware, there's a, a plethora of companies out there that charge you £50, £100 a month, and you'll receive X amount of bottles in the post. Uh, instead, we thought we flipped that on its head, and we charge our suppliers a small monthly fee um, to list and advertise their products to our members. So what does the consumer pay? The consumer doesn't pay anything. It's completely free. I see. Uh, so, so where did you get the idea for wine buyers? Um, oh, quite a quite a long story. I suppose it started about um, about ten years ago when I found myself at an auction one day. Um, I wasn't there to buy anything really, just um, just being nosy. And I ended up putting a bid on some wine, uh, sort of off the cuff. It was. Um, I'll tell you what it was. It was a 1959 Chateau Margaux, and it was had an auctioneer's estimate of, I think, about £7,200. £7, and I ended up putting a cheeky bid in of £3,700, um, never thinking that I'd win it or wanted to win it. Um, but lo and behold, I did. And I sold it three days later and almost doubled my money. So I got bidden by the bug then, and fast forward three months, I amassed a collection of 500 bottles. And I thought, crikey, I've got, to, I've got to sell it. And there wasn't any real viable route for me to do that. Uh, you couldn't sell on Amazon. They made it almost impossible. Uh, you couldn't sell on eBay here in the UK. It was illegal. Uh, so I was using a website called Bid for Wine. And it took me six minutes, 23 seconds to, to do a listing I, Timed it on many occasions. You know, it, quick, it quickly dawned on me then. It, it, you know, it would take such a vast amount of capital to turn that into an actual business and make money from it. Why not connect the people actually making the wine um, to the people buying it? And after quite a lot of research, it, it sort of blew my mind that nobody seemed to be doing that. At least nobody seemed to be doing it correctly, in my opinion. Where do, where do the supplies come from? Uh, currently, we've got suppliers in 40 different countries, so literally all over the place. Our, our primary focus initially was to start in the UK and then expand out, um, but we quickly got quite a lot of appetites, uh, specifically from Western Europe, um, but also Eastern Europe now. So yeah, 40 different countries. And would Australia be in there as well? We do have a few. With Australia, we um, our primary focus at the moment for customers is in the UK and Western Europe. So with our producers we work with in Australia, um, we do work with an importer. So the stock is physically here held under bond in the UK, but at no point did we own it. It's still their stock. Um, we're just helping distribute. So how is the wine actually delivered to the consumers? Yeah, so it's delivered straight, in the vast majority of cases, uh, straight from the vineyard, straight from the producer. Um, and I think that's the sort of beauty of the platform, really. The reality is a model like ours couldn't have existed 10 or 15 years ago. You know, there's been massive developments in your three major shipping companies, uh, UPS, FedEx, and DHL. You know, they've come on leaps and bounds that now not only makes it possible for vineyards to ship to ship to the end customer, it's probably their most economic route. And so all you're doing is you're connecting the vineyard to the customer. Exactly that. Yeah, we're just a conduit. We just facilitate the purchase. That's it. Um, I mean, I've been banned by our marketing team 
from using the term one-stop shop. But that's um, that's essentially what we want to be. We want to be the go-to place to buy wine. And uh, and the uh, and the suppliers are quite happy to come on board with for, to pay that fee. Yeah, just because it's um, it's incredibly cheap. So the subscription, how it works is it's a sliding scale depending on how many items they want to list. Uh, for producers, it's caps at 100 GBP per month. It would never be more than that. And the sort of logic there is that it should be it should be mutually beneficial for everybody involved. Obviously, the end customer is buying directly from the source, so they should be getting it from the best price, and you know they get that warm fuzzy feeling that they're helping out the farmers and it's not lying in the pockets of a, a massive conglomerate or supermarket. And the producers are obviously selling directly to the end customer, so they're they're maximizing their margins. And us in the middle, you know, we're if we've got a thousand suppliers paying us a hundred pounds a month, you know, why do we need to be greedy and, and take margin on the on the sale of items? It doesn't really seem to make sense to us. Well, the beauty of your model, too, is that you're actually challenging the supermarkets where a lot of the wine in the UK is sold. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I won't, uh, I won't bore you and bang on about the death of the high street and the world's getting smaller. But that, that's exactly it. The, wine's a very, the wine industry is a very traditionalist industry. Um, there's certain models that work, and we're, not, we're somewhat disruptive, but we're not trying to replace supermarkets and things like that there's always they all they serve a purpose there's always going to be a need if you need something incredibly incredibly quickly um, but for now with logistics being the main hurdle uh, the industry's had to overcome um, with these developments in the shipping companies you know we can ship something from Spain to the UK in 24 hours um, yesterday we had something from the UK uh, get to New York in the same day yeah it's fascinating to see the industry change so quickly and your customers, they come from where? All over the place? All over the place, yeah, exactly. And again, we, were, um, we really wanted to focus on the UK and grow up. But, I mean, to give you some idea, this morning we've had two orders from America, uh, Denmark, Spain, Portugal, um, Germany, one from Austria, all, all over the place. And in terms of the actual demographic as well, of the, the actual end customer, I always... I always thought it would be towards the higher end of the market just because that's my background. Uh, but we quickly realized that that wasn't the case. We were getting an appetite from, you know, we have we had an order this morning for £7.20 and another one for 8500 So it's incredibly varied. And uh, so, so the demographic is uh, wide and varied, is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, we don't, we can't really pigeonhole a buyer just because at the moment we're trying to hold the reins on marketing. 90% of our growth is organic. Um, so we're getting a lot of high net worth individuals purchased on the platform, but also millennials are obviously a huge growing market that they sort of want to go against the establishment and they realize that supermarkets are just making, you know, a huge amount of money being the middleman when it's not that necessary anymore. I suppose the other beauty of your model is you're actually building a real community among wine buyers. Would that be right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, education is a huge part of what we do. It's an incredibly intimidating world, uh, the wine world. Um, I mean, even, you know, I'd still get nervous going into specialist wine shops. There's so much information. It's unbelievably humbling. 
And I don't believe that anybody can call themselves an expert in the industry. You know, there's 10,000 different grape varieties growing in, you know, hundreds of, literally hundreds of countries now. So the thing about us is we want to be approachable to absolutely everybody. It's about teaching. We've got a blog, um, which is performing annoyingly well. I say annoyingly just because obviously we don't, we don't make any money from that at all. Um, but it's uh, yeah, it's a good way of introducing our members to new grape varieties, new regions, new types of wine that perhaps they haven't tried before, and things they literally can't buy anywhere else. So you're educating the public about wine, is that right? Yes, exactly. I mean, we do that um, via a number of different ways. Um, our platforms are incredibly intelligent and sophisticated. The more you use it, um, the more it learns. So if you jump on our platform and say you're specifically searching for um, French white wines priced between uh, £5 and £9, we can use machine learning algorithms to recommend products which you may not have tried but are very similar but different. So it may come up saying, oh, you like Sauvignon Blanc um, around this sort of area? Why not try some Vermentino? And it's that sort of level of technology that can, you know, can aid our customers' purchase decision and really help them explore the fantastic world of wine. And, of course, you get to learn more about what the individual customer wants and develop relationships with them there. Exactly so, yeah. I mean, sort of long gone are the days where you just, you know, put an email together and blast it out to thousands of people and sort of hope for the best. Now we need to be so much more strategic in our approach and intelligent and really understand what our community are after, um, what their interests are. If you've got someone who's browsing for, you know, £40,000 wine fridges and only first growth French reds, it, it wouldn't make sense to to offer them wines that are, you know, completely different to that. So we need to cater for, for all tastes to make sure we've got enough there to be attractive for everybody. Well, Ben, it's fascinating, and we'll be watching wine buyers very closely. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Thanks very much, Leon. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Chief Economist, Alex Joyner. Alex Joyner, the RBA cut interest rates already down to 0.75%. Uh, and there's a prospect of more cuts to come. It doesn't bode well for the economy. What's your view? Well, my view is that the Reserve Bank will be forced to cut again. Um, it has a policy tool now that really isn't generating the medium-term growth that it would like. And I would argue that you know, it's very much a, a cyclical tool of monetary policy, trying to address some structural problems that we have in, in the global economy and the Australian economy specifically. When they do that is open for debate. Uh, the October move sort of gives rise to the possibility they'll follow on quite quickly in November. I think they'll need to see the labour force data weaken uh, in this month. But we also get the CPI data out on October the 30th. And if we get a weak number there, I think that odds on, uh, November will be the likely prospect for the next move. I would also make the point that there really isn't any... Um, need or you know any constructive reason why the Reserve Bank would hold off on cutting further. I don't think they really need to finesse it. Um, the markets or market economists were looking for a February move. I don't really need think that the Reserve Bank needs to space it out. 
particularly in the context of their uh, statement on monetary policy forecast, which are still forecasting an unemployment rate of an unemployment rate of five percent when we know the NARO is four point five percent, so not anywhere near full employment, and an inflation rate that is still well below their target band. So you know the Reserve Bank's forecasting failure, but those forecasts are predicated on a cash rate of zero point five percent. So why don't we just get there? Would be my question. Now, the RBA in its statement actually talked about handling monetary policy till we get to full employment, mm -hmm. and we're not actually heading that. In fact, the next number is likely to be 5.5%. Mm -hmm. So we are more than likely to... And, and, of course, inflation is heading nowhere with uh, wages growth so low. So, uh, of course, we're going to get down to 0.5%. But the big question is... Are they going to go further? There's been lots of talk about it heading down to 0% or even negative territory. What's your view about that? Well, it's certainly true that you know, the RBA is trying to get to, to full, what it says is full employment. That's the, the Nehru, that's, that's the 4.5%. But it'll need to get uh, the unemployment rate below that to generate wages growth and that to translate into inflation. And we've seen that in every other advanced economy, uh, the US in particular getting its unemployment rate now down to a 50-year low. But should we chase the rest of the world down to zero rates or negative rates? I don't believe we should. You know, there is an argument that will go a little bit further towards zero, but we really don't see it would be a productive thing for, them, for the Reserve Bank to go negative. So I think that, you know, if the Reserve Bank considers going from 0.5 to 0.25, that's when it will really start to consider uh, unconventional uh, monetary policy. And I think in the first instance, it will be looking to facilitate uh, the banks trying to pass through their policy. We've seen with the October move that the banks didn't pass on the full 25 basis points. Now, it would be unlikely they'll pass on the next 25 basis points. And as we get towards zero, the likelihood becomes less and less. Because so. the reality is, the, the lower the interest rate, the lower the cash rate, the narrower the bank margins. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The NIM, uh, as we call it, net interest margins for the banks are getting squeezed uh, all the time. And they, the banks clearly have this problem where you can't continue to pass on lower and lower interest rates to savers. Because you know it would uh, incentivise savers to move their money out of the banks, and that's a key source of their funding. So it creates problems, and this is what we've seen in the rest of the world with negative interest rates in Europe and in Japan, uh, in particular. It creates uh, imbalances in the banking sector, and and that's not really something that would you know encourage a stable economic environment in Australia, with credit being important in in economic growth. Now, you're, you're talking about unconventional monetary policies. Uh, uh, we're talking here about quantitative easing, mm -hmm. are we? So what form would that take? Bond buying? Well, the Reserve Bank uh, has examined various methods and, and means of quantitative easing and has publicly talked about lowering the risk-free rate, which is, in effect, buying bonds. But really, you know, economists haven't decided, I don't think, the best way to do this, uh, to transmit this policy, because in the Australian context, unlike, say, in the US, uh, borrowing is done from the short end of the curve, so, you know, closer to the RBA's cash rate, not the long end of the curve. So, you know, the RBA, for example, buying 10-year bonds and pushing that rate lower 
doesn't necessarily benefit businesses or households in transmitting lower interest rates to them. So you know, I think the Reserve Bank, as they've said, would, would need to examine a number of options. Um, and for me, I think you know, what, what the Reserve Bank needs to focus on is the facilitation of uh, easier monetary policy to the business sector. Uh, and that's where, where the focus of their um, policy should be, and not necessarily the household sector, because we have no problem with extending credit to households. Uh, we're seeing all those metrics uh, start to lift in terms of housing finance and these sorts of things. And we're at the starting point of Australia having a very high household debt to GDP ratio. So we already have that. So we don't necessarily need monetary policy to make it easier for households to borrow and invest or, or purchase properties. We need the facilitation of monetary policy to be transmitted to the business sector so they can change their investment and employment behaviour for the benefit of the economy. And that's where really the Reserve Bank will have its challenge. You know, will it be buying sort of asset-backed securities and those sorts of things to lower, um, lower the, the lending rates in that space? And that, that will be the, the challenge, I think, for the Reserve Bank to come up with something in the Australian context that will be effective. Because the reality is that uh, businesses now are finding it harder and harder to get their funding. Yeah, well, that's right, absolutely. Um, we've, we've noticed ourselves uh, at IFM that you know, businesses are increasingly finding it difficult to access credit, uh, despite very low interest rates. You know, banks, are, banks are taking less risk in that space. And really what we've seen is the transmission of monetary policy so far uh, through the cash rate hasn't flowed through to the, to the business sector the way it's flowed through to the housing sector. Now, even though uh, you know, banks haven't passed on the full measure of what the Reserve Bank's done to housing, uh, sorry, to households, uh, they've passed on even less to the business sector. And that's really... Uh, in our view, uh, you know, problematic because that's really where we want to see, um, you know, the economic drivers come from is this is the corporate and business sector, and you know, I think the problem the Reserve Bank has is also that you know businesses don't find the price of money the problem in the economy. Uh, money is, you know, it might be difficult to access, but it's it's still quite cheap uh, for a lot of businesses. Um, you know, what businesses want is certainty in the outlook you know that's the reason they'll invest not just because money's cheap so i think that's that's another point that the the government uh the reserve bank's doing its bit but the government uh, needs to engender this more confident i guess policy platform and and they've seemed resident uh you know reluctant to do that i guess uh so far and uh, i mean the, the big worry though for the rba is the global economic outlook as well because uh, signs are not good for the global economy yeah, we've, we've really seen the global economy um, continues to take a leg down in terms of economic growth. You know, this sort of started out with, um, you know, the 2016-2017 the synchronised upturn starting to fade. You know, on top of that, we had, you know, geopolitical concerns, most notably, obviously, the, the US-China uh, trade tensions. And that sort of weighed very much in the manufacturing sector of a lot of advanced economies. You know, we saw this in Europe uh, we've seen it now in the US, we've seen it uh, in the UK and Japan. But now it's broadening out in those economies, and that's really the concern. And problematic in that is that the central banks of the world really don't have the firepower alone to address this slowdown. So if it continues to get a little bit worse, you know, reserve, uh, central banks around the world are going to do their bit, but they really don't have uh, much more they can do, you know. 
you get you take the the ECB as an example. They already have negative rates. Uh, they already um, hadn't uh, done anything with their balance sheet. Now they've sort of taken a kitchen sink approach to to um, to taking rates more negative still uh, to reinstate quantitative easing and a series of other measures to facilitate credit flow to the economy. But there's only so much you can do. Uh, you know, most central bankers now are talking fiscal policy, ironically enough. Uh, but fiscal policy makers uh, are either incapable of doing that or unwilling to do that. And I think in the Australian case, it's more in that latter category. Indeed. And uh, so the reality is the RBA, and for that matter, all the other central banks, have very little ammo left. Well, that's right. It's, you know, it's... It's a situation where um, we have continually, in advanced economies, attempted to address structural issues in in our economies with the cyclical policy of monetary, uh, the cyclical tool of monetary policy. Uh, and I use Australia as the example. You know, we have very poor productivity growth at the moment. That is not going to be uh, fixed by lower interest rates. That's going to be fixed by government policy uh, and reforms. Uh, and making it easier for businesses to invest and employ. So that's just one example of the way that economies are beset by challenges to potential growth rates. Uh, And what we continue to do and continue to see is these challenges being uh, met by monetary policymakers and not fiscal policymakers. And certainly it's more appropriate going forward that fiscal policy uh, take the fall Um, And, you know, central bankers are increasingly aware of this, and that's why they're talking about fiscal policy so much. Well, that'll be something to watch out for. And uh, Alex, Jordan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks a lot, Liam. Appreciate it. So what's happening in the news? Well, China wants to hold more talks this month to hammer out the details of the Phase 1 trade deal touted by Donald Trump before Xi Jinping agrees to sign it. Beijing may send a delegation led by Vice Premier Li He China's top negotiator to finalise a written deal that could be signed by the presidents at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit next month in Chile. China also wants Trump to scrap a planned tariff hike in December, in addition to the hike scheduled for this week, something the administration hasn't yet endorsed. The US and China have emerged from last week's talks with different takes on what's in in the accord and how close they are to signing a document. Trump said... We've come to a deal, pretty much subject to getting it written, and indicated it might take several more weeks of negotiation. Investors are more wary. Though US equities rose last week as trade tensions eased, they trimmed gains Friday afternoon when reality set in. The deal, Trump called the biggest in the history of our country, had a significant shortcoming. It wasn't a signed document yet, even though it has in effect been on the table for more than a year. So economists reacted with a range of scepticism and doubt about what it means for growth projections that are coming down as the 18-month trade war drags on. China's Ministry of Commerce merely said that the two sides have made substantial progress and agreed to work together in the direction of a final agreement. The state-run Xinhua News Agency didn't mention a deal either. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, speaking in an interview Monday on CNBC, said he expects officials to work in coming weeks to get the first stage ready for both sides to sign. If that doesn't happen, the new US import taxes on Chinese products will be imposed starting December 15th, he said. And the chance of another Reserve Bank rate cut on Melbourne Cup Day fell to 36% 
after the bank's board indicated that low rates were having a negative effect on households and savers. Economists are now not banking on a cut until February, after members of the RBA board noted that policy stimulus might be less effective than past experience suggests in the minutes of their meeting in October, when they cut rates for the third time this year. The minutes say the usual stimulatory effect on borrowing or the construction industry may not be operating in the same way as in the past and that the negative effect of low interest rates on the income and confidence of savers might be more significant. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison declared his budget surplus plan will not be spooked by international events as the International Monetary Fund slashed Australia's economic growth forecast to just 1.7%, worse than Greece, and advised world governments to unleash a spending stimulus. The IMF's World Economic Outlook warned of a synchronised global slowdown to the weakest pace since the 2008-09 global financial crisis, as the world economy is pummeled by the US-China trade war that is inflicting a sharp deterioration in global manufacturing and trade. The IMF downgraded Australia's forecast, slicing 0.4 of a percentage points off growth for 2019, and cutting the 2020 expected recovery rate by 0.5 percentage point to below 2.3%. The fund reckons world GDP will grow by 3% in 2019, 0.3 percentage points less than it forecast six months ago. This will make it the slowest rate of expansion since the Great Recession of 2009. And Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has charged the consumer watchdog with investigating the refusal of the banks to pass on in full the recent spate of interest rate cuts, creating the potential for a further round of government intervention. After his calls for the banks to pass on rate cuts in full were ignored for a third time this year, Mr Frydenberg tasked the Australian Competition Consumer Commission with looking into the pricing of residential mortgage products and to examine obstacles that stop customers switching lenders. The ACCC will focus on the period since January this year and the response by the banks to the three rate cuts made by the Reserve Bank in June, July and October, which have resulted in the cash rate being reduced by a total of 75 basis points. At the same time, the big four banks have passed on an average of 57 basis points in owner-occupied home loan rates. Their refusal to pass the rate on in full, as well as delays in passing on the reductions banks did grant, will see the big four pocket $569 million in revenue between them, according to Treasury numbers released by Mr Frydenberg. The inquiry will focus on the entire residential mortgage sector, the big banks, the smaller banks and the non-bank lenders, but the emphasis will be on the big four, which have 75% of the market. It comes after ACCC Chairman Rod Sims accused banks of dudding their loyal customers, a claim rejected by RBA member Ian Harper, who countered that price discrimination was neither illegal nor unusual. And banks and financial services that bury consumers in a complex sludge of disclosure and fine print face a crackdown by the corporate regulator. The Australian Securities and Investments Commission, ASIC, has warned that consumers are exposed to greater harm, with some companies using the cover of disclosure to deliberately bamboozle with a deluge of legalese that pushes some into inappropriate financial products. A joint study by ASIC and the Netherlands Authority for the Financial Markets examining 33 international case studies found product disclosure statements, so-called simple key fact sheets and warnings, were ineffective and harmed consumers of banking, insurance, investment advice and superannuation. Among the case studies over a decade contained in the ASIC Dutch report published on Monday night, 
Superannuation dashboards, intended to provide a simple snapshot summary of a super product on a fund's website, were found to be vulnerable to manipulation. A key implication of this research is the ease with which consumer choice could be manipulated through the dashboard, for example, by relabeling or reweighting asset allocation information used in the pie chart, the report notes. Two-thirds of people were not able to locate all relevant investment fund fees, and less than half could identify all super fund fees. In insurance, consumers focus too much on price to the exclusion of other factors, such as the terms of payouts in the event of an accident. Only two in five Australians, given a key fact sheet for insurance, objectively selected the best product, with 60% given suboptimal insurance. Some 86% of local consumers assessed the quality of financial advice to be good, in contrast to 39% of the same advice being independently rated as poor. This year, ASIC has targeted risky payday lending firms such as Signo and add-on insurance products sold by car yards. And Gina Reinhardt is moving from the mining boom to the dining room, expanding her agricultural beef production in New England with the purchase of another property. Pastoral Properties, a subsidiary of the billionaire's mineral exploration and extraction company Hancock Prospecting, has bought several properties in the region as part of the tycoon's diversification into Wagyu beef. The most recent purchase was a historic Warrabah station between Kingstown and Manila, and the acquisition takes a total number of Ms. Reinhardt's New England properties to six. Other properties include three Lindhurst properties, totaling 3,280 hectares, and two Kingstown properties, which include the 17,800 hectare Sundown Valley, purchased for its breeding and growing capacity. And Bunnings has announced a big change. It's going online in a big way. Bunnings says it will bolster its online offering next month by launching a digital platform to allow customers to shop from home and have items delivered to their doorstep. The iconic hardware chain has already announced it will have more than 60,000 products available for click and collect within the next year. But it will now also have its very own online marketplace. The major retailer has dubbed the initiative MarketLink, which will give customers access to a wider range of home and lifestyle goods selling as much as 8,000 products. The online division will give shoppers access to items not currently available in store, including indoor furniture, white goods, kitchen appliances, home entertainment, kitchenware and homeware. Bunnings says its website is the third most visited shopping and classified site in the country, which makes it an attractive platform for home and lifestyle retailers and manufacturers to pursue as a sales alternative. But can you order a Bunnings snag online? And there's growing evidence that $16 billion in stimulus in the form of tax cuts and record low interest rates has failed to convince shoppers to open their wallets, with furniture retailer Nick Scully warning that profits could fall as much as 32% in the December half after cautious consumers postponed purchases of, of sofas, dining tables and bedroom furniture. In a trading update two weeks before its annual meeting, Nick Scarley said monthly store sales were down to 10-15% to 15% in the first three and a half months of FY 2020, dragging same-store sales down by 8%. As a result, the company expects net profit for the six months ending December to fall by between 24% and 32% to between $17 million and $19 million. And Crown Casino faces fresh demands for an official inquiry into its activities, with allegations to be aired that the venue brings overseas high rollers into Australia without customs checks. Video footage shows dozens of bricks of $50 and $100 notes 
hundreds of thousands of dollars worth, being casually handed over from a shopping bag in a high rollers room at Melbourne's Crown Casino. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie will use the claims of a limousine driver for the gambling giant, who alleges a culture of drugs, prostitution, violence against women and other abuses among the VIP gamblers at Crown, to call for a royal commission. The whistleblower, speaking on condition of anonymity, has told the Tasmanian MP that casino employees are expected to ignore or facilitate the law-breaking under a system known among staff as Crown Law. The driver says Crown staff will procure drugs or sex workers for the overseas high rollers who have flown into Melbourne Airport on private jets, bypassing the official customs checks imposed on other travellers. Mr Wilkie has joined forces with Victorian State MP Fiona Patton with a pair to launch a push for a Royal Commission into Crown saying the driver's video testimony is another piece of evidence that cannot be ignored by state or federal authorities. The two MPs will release a video of the driver's claims and they say the man is a credible witness and his allegations call for further investigation. Australian casinos are already under investigation by the Australian Criminal Intelligence Agency after revelations in July by the Age and 60 Minutes that the Melbourne venue had business ties to organisations linked to Chinese organised crime. Crown is being separately investigated by the Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor Regulation as a result of their reports. And beer giant. Carlton United Breweries is tapping into drinkers' growing taste for craft beer, striking a deal with one of the founding fathers of Australia's craft brewing industry, Phil Sexton, to establish a boutique brewery in Victoria's Yarra Valley. The move is the latest acknowledgement from major breweries that consumers are increasingly turning to craft beers, a segment that has grown strongly at the expense of mainstream beers. The new brewery will make beers under the Matilda Bay label, including well-known names like Redback and Dog Bolter. It will also develop a new range of Matilda Bay beers. Mr Sexton was a joint founder of the Matilda Bay Brewery in the early 1980s and a joint founder of Little Creatures Brewery, both of which were established in Fremantle in Western Australia. CUB fully acquired Matilda Bay in 1990. And Santos boss Kevin Gallagher says gas has a big future as the company inked a $2.2 billion deal to buy a range of northern Australian assets from the international oil and gas company Conoco Phillips. The assets are both onshore and offshore, and Santos' expensive acquisitions will lift the company's earnings per share by about 16%. Conoco Phillips is the operator and majority owner of the Darwin Likud natural gas plant and the Bayou Undan offshore field that supplies the Darwin plant. Santos currently has an 11.5% share in each. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Tommy Huppert, CEO of Canatrek which has just got permission from Greater Shepparton City Council to build a $160 million medicinal cannabis production facility near Shepparton, Victoria. When completed, it will be one of the world's largest medicinal cannabis facilities, creating more than 400 jobs a year for the Greater Shepparton area and beyond. The facility will include a 160,000 square metre growing area under a giant high-technology glasshouse. When operating at full production, the company aims to produce 160 tonnes of medicinal cannabis per year. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory, analysing the latest attempt by the US and China to come up with a trade deal. And of course I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week, take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 